The following podcast contains explicit language. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. We could make deals in Russia very easily if we wanted to. I just don't want to because I think that would be a conflict. I have a no conflict of interest provision as president, and that's something that Nazi Germany would have done and did do. I think it's a disgrace. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who thinks exercise uses too much of the body's finite energy, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg, and we're back for the second edition of the Trumpcast Book Club. I want to welcome back Katie Royfe of NYU and Philip Garevich of The New Yorker. Thanks for coming back for another round, guys. Good to be here. I, I imagine that at some point in the uh, last several weeks, uh, you were cursing me. Both of you were cursing <laughs> me reading this book. That's, uh, uncomfortable. That, that, that was the uncomfortable laugh no. of truth. Um, but I, I want to explain why I picked it, because I was, I was trying to remember, but I, there was, it had to do with our last book. Philip Roth wrote an email to The New Yorker apropos of our first book, The Plot Against America, and he was talking about it. And I'm just going to read this thing from his email that he sent to The New Yorker. He said, it's easier to comprehend the election of an imaginary president like Charles Lindbergh than an actual president like Donald Trump. And he said that Lindbergh, despite his Nazi sympathies, was a great aviation hero who had physical courage and obviously crossed the Atlantic solo in 1927. But um, he goes on to say, Trump is just a con artist. And Philip Roth said the relevant book about Trump's American forebearer is Herman Melville's The Confidence Man, which he describes as the darkly pessimistic, daringly inventive novel, which was Melville's last, that could just as well have been called The Art of the Scam. So I read that and I thought, this is the book that's going to explain Donald Trump to me. And it explained Donald Trump, right? We understand him now. Uh, All right, I'm going to be the weird defender on him. I mean, uh, even if you pass the buck to Philip Roth for assigning this book. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a completely mad book and um, impenetrable in many ways. And it sort of takes everything that's maddeningly hard to read about Shakespeare and then sort of puts it to some exponential level of extra density and without a coherent plot or situation. And yet there are a lot of things in here that actually are pretty pretty usable for the thinking about the present before yeah, before I, we didn't get away I mean, what was your just reaction to it did you enjoy reading this book in any way um no yeah i i liked i can't even say i enjoyed reading it anyway but i did find it a little bit interesting um in part because um i'm very interested in con men in general so i found it weirdly fascinating and i i, rem- I just want to bring up that it was i think it was bloomberg who first called Trump a con man. He said, I'm from New York and I recognize a con man when I see him. At the convention. Yes. Yeah, so that was convention. like, he was the one who first brought up that idea publicly yeah. of like, maybe Trump's a con man. And obviously this con man um, is quite different from Trump because he's, for one thing, um, like silver-tongued. He's like a beautiful rhetorician in a way. So it's it's in a way like a different um, genre of con man. But I think we could also talk a lot about the people that are conned and the psychology of being conned, which I think kind of explains, I, I was really upset to read the um, New York Times article today about Trump voters kind of revisiting people who voted for Trump and were they happy or unhappy with the first 100 days. And it was kind of like they're happy because they love him and nothing that's happened or not happened in the first 100 days like really matter at all. And that felt weirdly relevant to me to this book. 
Well, first, before we get into it and before we get into the Trump part of it, I think we should just talk about what the book is a little bit. Philip, can you just kind of describe you can't say the plot because there isn't that much of one. There's a little bit of one. But to just to say what say what happens in this book. Well, the book is set on April Fool's Day, and it was published actually on April 1st, 1857. And it starts with a mysterious stranger, a stranger in the most extreme sense of the word or something, uh, he says, arriving at St. Louis on the dock and stepping aboard a steamship bound for New Orleans on the Mississippi River called ironically enough, the Fidel, as in the faithful. Yeah. And uh, and it just, it, it, it almost starts like a play. You've got this kind of cast of the the various passengers who kind of exit and enter onto the boat as it sort of, it, it seems to be a local, essentially, that sort of stops here and there on either shore, dropping off and picking up people. And, you know, the context is this is the mid-1850s. It's a decade before the Civil War. It's a time of tremendous expansion. It's a time of Wall Street boom and bust. There are all kinds of scam artists and everything else. And it's uh, from the very beginning, this kind of high-blown, high-rhetoric, Melville kind of philosophical dialogues that are staged in one encounter after another between this con man in various guises and various marks, who are the passengers, about the nature of trust, the nature of confidence, the nature of charity. And at some very core uh, level, is humankind more good than wicked. I mean, are we to be trusted or are we fundamentally untrustworthy? And that that question of like actual nature versus our higher ideals uh, keeps popping up. And and he's a he is constantly persuading people you must trust me. He's constantly preaching various gospels of charity and confidence and trust and what you know, will you be my friend? I am so bereft. Oh, I am alone in the world and you I see I see a sympathetic man. You, my dear lady, are one of the few people I think I can confide in. Will you show your confidence in me? And well, what would that mean? You know, I need basically it usually means at some point he's gonna put the touch on them. It could be for a coin, it could be for a great deal more. He builds some elaborate schemes where he's selling uh, stock in the Black Diamond, uh, what is it called? The Black River Coal Company. He has a Seminole widow and orphan asylum. He's selling plots of land in a utopian community called New Jerusalem, founded yeah. by fugitive Mormons. He's hawking herbal cures. Uh, and these are all in different guises. They're different sometimes. characters, right. I mean, the first one is is a uh, is a uh, crippled black man who's laying on the deck of the ship. Right. Uh, uh, and people are doubting whether he's genuinely crippled. Or black. Or black, yes. So, so the whole thing. And then uh, he hawks herbal cures, omni balsamic reinvigorator. I mean, these things are kind of wild. And he also has this crazy idea that he's pitching of a world charity that'll put in, you know, if, you, if everybody gives a little bit to this charity, there'll be enough money to end the need for charity forever. But each of these different characters also then in its next guise perpetuates certain cons so that you have this self-reinforcing system. If I went to you, Katie, and said, you want to buy, you know, I've heard about this fantastic uh, opportunity in the Black River Coal Company. Then a little while later, I would, in a different guise, show up and talk to you about it, Jacob. And then the two of you would talk to each other that you'd heard about this. And the next time I'd be in a third guise and both of you would be ready to buy. Right. And his his last scam, which is incredibly elaborate and he spends a lot of time on, is to steal a free 10-cent haircut. 
Right. Right. <laughs> right. So the value of what he's conning is wi- wildly varying. And the and the uh, the cripple at the beginning is just trying to get some coins. Right. Not, the, yeah. There's a great line about that early on where somebody's basically saying, oh, all you people who talk about trust and, and, and charity and confidence, you're always on the make. You're always in it for mm-hmm. a buck. And he says, oh, what did the snake get from conning Eve? Basically. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing. And there's actually a pure motive of yeah. kind of wickedness or of, of, of showing the wicked nature of, uh, of humankind prevails. So, Katie, an idea that immediately comes up is that this uh, character who can inhabit these different identities is the devil. Did you did you read this to be a book about the devil? Well, it definitely raises the religious overtones, but I think um, – it's playing with that, but he's more than that because he's also, you know, in a way he just has the joy of persuasion. If he is the devil, he's more like Milton Satan. He's like a devil that enjoys language because hmm. to me, he's more like the writer or, you know, somebody who's playing with words, um, which is a very specific idea of the devil that is not necessarily, you know, strictly uh, Christian. And he has a lot of ideas about literature, right? I mean, there's a lot of discussion of yes. Shakespeare and uh, with Tacitus, Tacitus, Tacitus. And comes across a, a guy reading Tacitus and wants to throw his book in the river because Tacitus will poison his mind. Why? What's the problem with Tacitus? He's too negative. He's too I, negative. I'm not a Tacitus scholar, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but you know the idea is yes that basically that Tacitus is a cynic, cynic, and, yeah. and, 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 and in in some way it's basically he has a cynical view of humankind. And this guy, in his way of preaching hope, is to say that poisons the mind of all you young students. And uh, this is the book you mustn't read. You must read books that are happy and cheerful and show good things. I mean, there's a lot of riffing on literature in general. There are two great chapters on what the problem is for the novelist uh, in presenting believable characters. And one of them is all about inconsistency versus consistency in that most readers will say, well, this character is not realistic. They're totally inconsistent. And he's saying, but in fact, that's how people are. And that fiction, the biggest fiction in fiction is to make characters credible as opposed to the way they appear in nature. So he might be the devil in some sense. Is he a particularly American character? I mean, is the con man an American phenomenon? I mean, apparently um, there were a lot of con men operating at that time. There was a, it was a time of great It was a scams. thing. It was a thing in the Self-invention, 18- and the American dream. Yeah. There was a famous case in 1850. 18- 55, which when he started this thing, there was in all the New York papers about a guy who literally went around talking like this guy saying, you know, oh, you must have confidence accosting strangers. Do you trust me? Would you trust me? What do you believe in confidence? And then like, may I borrow your watch? Mm. His, name know, was, much, his name was Ronald Drumpf. Yes. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> kind of like this guy who went around the country for the last year and a half. May I borrow your White House? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? But that was this guy's scam. May I borrow your watch? And then you'd never see him again. And he got caught. Yeah. And, and, and. Even then, the uh, local papers apparently were thundering about him and saying, uh, why is this the big case when you could get the bigger fish on Wall Street? Yeah. You know, I mean, in other words, there was this idea mm. that there's a continuum from this petty crime to the top, that it was a kind of American character, the selling of bogus real estate. The idea that there was also belief and hope, right? These why that you could sell belief and hope in extremely flimsy properties of one kind or another. And people sort of thought, yes, I've heard stories just like that, where somebody entrusted a stranger with $10 and now is a millionaire, you know? Um, And so there was this playing off that, playing off what is incredible by simply saying, don't you want it to become true? What not reality essentially what we're going to invent it as? Yeah. 
Yeah, and there definitely is is an incredible like like the scheme that you were talking about earlier, Philip, where there's going to be this charity that's going to you're going to give all this money to this one charity, which will end all like human suffering. And there's something there is something both the sort of like ragtag, like selling cures kind of, you know, you see them in the Wizard of Oz, even like this old Mm -hmm. fashioned American idea, but also the inventing this creating this new world that's going to solve all the problems of the old world. It is it is American. And what one thing I was struck by is that uh, he's very he plays very fast and loose with the truth and with other people, even with other people's memories. Like one time he meets somebody and he's like, don't you remember we've met before? You you know, you do remember this party? He's yeah. like, you took me home. I was from, at your house for dinner. Yes, right. I was at your house for dinner. And the guy's like, no, I don't remember you at all. And he's like, did you have a fall? Could you, maybe right. you forgot because you concussion. bumped your head. <laughs> and the guy's like, well, I did have a fall. And suddenly he's doubting his own memory that he hadn't had dinner with this guy. So he's literally, his approach to the truth, again, it's like Trump's alternative facts, is so... Um, we could say creative, you know, to be to be that brazen to like reinvent someone's memory and be like, of course, you know me. That idea is it is it's like the purest form of self-invention. I mean, the, the cons seem pretty familiar, a lot of them, right? They're still with the versions of this are still circulating on the Internet. Oh, totally. A lot of them are like the ones you get that say, you know, if you could just lend me your bank account for a minute, I the son of, you know, Mobutu will uh, put my diamond mine in your account. And you will keep 20% or the ones we get from somebody who's hacked, you know. Yeah. I, my wallet has been stolen. Right. Yeah. My passport and yeah, wallet. Will you uh, kindly give me. Wire to yeah. Madrid immediately. That is one of his scams. He's lost. He just he's, he's, has, has money. He just doesn't have it on him. So that's you right. Lend him 10 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever he wants. But he kind of argues people to death. I mean, the scene with the barber at the end is like unbelievable because he wants the barber has a sign up that says no trust which means you, you're not going to get a shave on on credit. And and the confidence man spends pages and pages trying to tell him how terrible it is not to trust people and says he will indemnify him. He will make him a guarantee that if he will only take the sign down and trust his customers, he will make up for any loss. And the barber is finally beaten down and says, okay. And then the confidence man says, of course, and thank you. And now please give me a haircut. And the barber says, well, pay me first. And he said, what do you mean? I'm just agreed to cover all your losses. But of course, no money down. Right. So the but, first thing he does after convincing the guy finally that he should trust people more is scam him. Is scam him. And make him totally, is betray it. But he's exhausting, the confidence man. I mean, you yield to him. You might yield to him because you're fooled by him. But you might also just surrender to his his willingness to argue his position forever. But this is where I think that, like, this is where I saw the kind of not one-to-one analogy, but the sort of way that this book can kind of inform a bit our understanding of just now, which is he is selling hope and trust. And in a way, the last president did a lot of that. Um, and believe me, believe me, believe I mean, me. Also, Trump's, Trump's, yeah, no, I'm saying the last. President oh, the last did president. That. Sorry. And Trump comes along, and he's basically got a dark view. He's like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, those everybody's, all those guys, they make a shiny world look for you, but you know, it's a terrible, terrible time. It's American carnage. It's darkness. It's everything is being shuttered. The immigrants are coming across the border. We have to protect ourselves and turn inward. And you have the other view, which is the sort of sunny view, and they are two views of human nature that they're both playing off. And the people who are untrusting are often depicting a character not unlike the confidence man. 
And there are a couple of places where they revert to these nature imageries. There's one which says like, well, would you hold the butterfly responsible for the caterpillar's sins? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And the other, which is, is a rattlesnake accountable? And in a way, that's Trump's idea, right? I'm not consistent. I'm not account. I'm just, I'm just doing, I'm a deal maker. I'm a guy who operates. I'm moving through this thing. And a lot of people are willing to make, as you said, these kind of disturbing excuses on his behalf. Yeah. I mean, but even in a weird way, and this is true in this book, and one of the things I found resonant is that it doesn't really matter whether Trump does what he says he's going to do. It's the words themselves. So it's just putting out the idea, I'm going to give you health care. Everyone will be covered. It'll be cheaper. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And in a way, it's just this empty promise. But what it makes people feel good. And there is an element in this book where his words are kind of sort of filling this void or making people happy or giving them love or giving them something they want to believe in. And whether he actually does it, and that's why I was like horrified to read this article in the Times today, whether he does it is sort of secondary. A lot of the people are saying, well, he's trying, but at least he said it. You know, at least he said he was going to repeal health care. <laughs> I mean, and the thing is that what matters less is we kind of have this logical view that what matters is the follow through. What matters is if he can pass legislation or why, whether there's a wall. But in a strange way, it's the words that matter. It's the promises that matter. It's him at a speech saying things in the way he says things that matter, what, however they affect reality. I think that's the kind of scary thing I, I sort of saw connected here. And I think that's what Philip Roth is, is talking about, right? I mean, because to be a con man would distinguish you among politicians because most politicians, they may lie, they may deceive people, but they don't think in their own minds that what they're doing is swindling people. They think they're helping people, and most of the time they manage to believe what they're saying. They make they make their beliefs accommodate reality. But the con man is distinguished, the confidence man is distinguished by knowing he is, he is engaged in a conscious fraud. He's trying to get your watch away from you, and he's willing to do anything to uh, accomplish his objective. And, and words are just detached from reality. Like, give me your watch. You know, it just, it's all detached. What he's offering you is just detached from anything real. Words are strategies, right? And and you might use a totally different strategy with a different customer tomorrow because the object is to just get the watch, right? And if you you have to beg them to trust you, that's fine. And you have to convince them that you're a cripple, that's fine. And to convince them you have the cure for world hunger, that's fine. Whatever I, you do have to but do. But also you have to sort of believe what you're saying. And that's part of this kind of crazy swarm of words that comes out of this guy as he starts to like just swamp people with his arguments. You know, because what he's saying is, I want you to believe completely in this Seminole Indian fund uh, for the Seminole orphans and so forth. But in fact, he's stealing from them. So he's conjuring this thing that is really appealing to their better nature while he's working his worst. And you never know whether he's a person who believes that he's a crook or whether he believes that everybody's like this. This is just the way of the world and everybody's doing it to everybody all the time. And there is no reality except the reality that just took place like two seconds ago because of your own invention. That's really unclear about this character. Um, well, Melville it's, it's never un- gives yeah. us that extra layer of showing us who the man behind the curtain is or isn't. Yeah, it's true. I, I actually have a real life con man in my life right now. Um, So I was just thinking about this experience. And one thing about my con man is like if I'm emailing him or I'm talking to him on the phone, you come away from the email or the call feeling really good. Like he'll always like give you what you want, even (laughs) while he is like taking your money, like 
like telling you like crazy lies, like whatever he's doing, um, and he is doing those things, you're still feeling like great about yourself, about him. Yes, because he knows what to say to make you. And this con man does the same thing where you feel and I mean, again, I'm feeling like, am I like a person at a Trump rally? You know, like you're feeling that that something he's saying is giving you what you want. So when he's saying like, you know, I'll give you my friendship. There's a lot about friendship here and love and trust and, you know, all of this. He's he's kind of giving you a view of the world that you are very seduced by, even as you may even know. And that's one of the remarkable things. A lot of these people sort of know they're being conned or like are kind of aware of it for at least most of the time. But he's still, you know, they can't he's they're like besotted with him. And I think that's a that's an interesting element of this. Tell us more about this con man in your life. Why do you oh want why do you have a con God. man in your life? It is a really long story. I like can't extricate the con man from my life, but he knows like I, I get this feeling that people come out of their interactions with him and they feel like when they've given him money or even they've lent him something or they've helped him out of this hard situation, he knows how to do it in such a way that he is giving them a vision of themselves that is positive, which is, I think, part of the essence here. And I think, again, people have talked about Trump and how he's kind of saying to some people who feel like they've been forgotten or not looked at or or people look down on them. And he's kind of just giving them an image of themselves that they want, even as he's saying, like Philip was saying, like, everything's terrible. America's, you know, terrible. But, but we're going to make still, it great again. Right. It's and like we're going to will to and, believe. And he is sort of saying, and you the unemployed steelworker are great. Like he's still, you know, communicating some some sort of flattering vision. Yes. I mean, and there's there's very much the sort of the way that a con man makes you feel good is that he has some way to appeal to what it is that you'd like to believe Mm -hmm. there. And and he'll read that in different types. Uh, You know, it's not all that different one from the other. As you say, there are only like a half dozen scams that are just replayed and replayed and replayed in in all of world history. Um, But there's a kind of alertness to the very specificity of of the person that you're you're appealing to and the willingness to say completely contradictory things, um, to say things that don't add up and to always be sort of selling some kind of wonderful, implausible improvement is all part of it with him. You know, like like what could be greater than a world in which everybody's trustworthy? That's what he's trying to sell. Yeah. Well, I mean, being conned is a kind of deep experience. You know, I mean, I was thinking while you were talking, I remember when I must have been when I was in high school or college being conned by someone in the park, right? I was, I was, I think I was walking in Lincoln Park in Chicago and there was a somewhat raggedy looking guy with a gas can and he stopped me. I was young and he said, uh, I'm tr- I ran out of gas. I'm trying to get back to Florida. My family, sick relative, the whole thing. For like good, good performance. I thought it was probably true. Like he, I talked to him long enough. He believed, and um, I gave him ten dollars, I think, for gas. And he wrote down my address. And he said, as soon as I get back to Florida, I'm going to send you the ten dollars back. I didn't really think I'd see it again, but I was happy to help him. And uh, you know, I felt generous. I'd I'd help this guy. And two days later, I was jogging in the park. Same guy, same gas can, walking walking through the park, and I just it was a kind of it was a it was a profoundly disillusioning experience because what it taught me is don't be generous, don't mm. trust people, assume that people are trying to trick you into instead of 
assuming that most people are probably basically trustworthy and, most of the time. It's weirdly emotional because like that it does it yeah. does exist on a weirdly. It's not all kind of convincing someone in a rational way. I, my my this is not about my own personal con man, but my husband recently had a con man who tried to buy a desk on Craigslist and it turned into this really complicated thing where he was like needing my husband to give him extra money and then he would send him a check and it was really complicated. But at one point he sent a text message and he said your desk is my life. <laughs> and at that point, I was like, my husband was like really into it. Like he didn't really realize this was a con like till way after that. And I was like, when he said your desk is my life, weren't you kind of like my desk is not your life? <laughs> but you get in, you kind of get sucked into the, the you know, just slowly little bit by bit into this weird story. And then later you can be like, well, why did that happen? And and that actually happens in this book quite a lot. Well, one of the things apparently I remember reading about up on the uh, Nigerian scam emails, the ones that just seem so preposterous and they're they're often slightly ungrammatical and they're um, sort of saying, you know, I am the last prince of yeah. the such and such kingdom and have sole access to, you know, the gold reserves of such and such. And Imagine the real son of the Nigerian uh, oil minister. Right. No one will ever respond to his emails. <laughs> right. But, yeah. so, but, but part of the ludicrousness of these letters is deliberate because they want to get the rest of us who are going like, ha ha, no way. And they want to find that one in a thousand or 5,000 people because they're just blasting these things out into space. Who's going to look at that and, and somewhere it's going to hit a register. It's going to make them think like, oh, is that an opportunity? Or, oh, the poor man. And all the kind of bizarre questions like, how on earth did he get my email here, like in St. Cloud, Minnesota, or wherever it is that this lady with her little pension is sitting and about to get robbed. But it's more the will to believe, the sort of credulity, the implausibility somehow works as a credibility thing rather than for the rest of us, it obviously disqualifies it. And there's something about this guy in this book that's very, I think, ingeniously, even if it's often impenetrably Baroque language. He's ingeniously always sort of inviting your suspicion and saying, you see, isn't that the insidious thing? Isn't your suspicion the thing that really stands between you and the world? Isn't that a sad and terrible thing that you should look at me and immediately feel suspicion? I, I, I just saw that glimmer in, 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 of doubt in you. Let's override that doubt together. Yeah. Right? So it's like he's actually conning the con out of the con you know yeah. it's sort of like this triple layered approach that's pretty spectacular the way it works and and i think that's really what melville's fascinated with here i mean you've got this biography of melville in front of you so you can probably explain this but i, I assume that he's there's something going on here with the interplay of religious faith and religious skepticism and i don't know how much of a believer or skeptic melville really was but the you could substitute for the 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 petty scams, the stock frauds and, and patent medicines of the con man, the question of whether you have religious belief or doubt. Yeah, I mean, he was um, he, he was not a believer, but he was fascinated by conjuring with questions of belief. Um, he was in a really dark phase. So this was the last novel published in his lifetime. And it had this totally downward trajectory over time. You know, each book sold worse than the last. And he wrote Moby Dick, which is a masterpiece of all time. And like nobody noticed it. Like it didn't mm. sell. It got like the only person who appreciated him was Hawthorne, right? Right. Yeah. And, and so and he and then he wrote this book and he turns it in. He goes out and gets drunk with the publisher. There's actually a great story that Andrew Del Banco tells about that, which is which is pretty entertaining. Andrew, He's, that's the biography. That's the reading. biography I have here. And he and he basically um, he goes out and he gets drunk with his publisher, and he um, 
was reported to have said, you know, he, he at some point told that great story from the Decameron of the enchantment of the husband in the tree. And Del Banco summarizes, this was Boccaccio's tale about a young wife who persuades her much older husband that the pear tree in their garden has the power to make jealous forebodings seem real. Having been convinced him that he should test the truth of what she says by climbing the magical tree, she has eager intercourse with a servant before her husband's eyes, humping away as if in a perfect seclusion, while the husband blames his jealousy rather than his wife. And apparently... The report on this dinner was it was just like one story after another in an orgy of indecency and blasphemy uh, that he just went on like this. <laughs> and so he was really in this dark place about humankind, right? Like everything was deceit and decline. And he, his family, he was also in debt. And his family decided like they, they should really get him out of there for a little while. And so they sent him off on this sort of trip to Europe and, and actually to the Middle East um, where he just got more depressed. But along the way, he stops and he visits Hawthorne, who was like the consul for the United States. He'd got himself a diplomatic post in Liverpool. And there's just this wonderful, wonderful, famous letter that um, Hawthorne wrote uh, right afterwards about this visit that they had and that they they went and they walked among the dunes. And he said, um, and he said, we sat down among the sandhills and smoked a cigar. Melville, as he always does, began to reason of providence and futurity and of everything that lies beyond human ken and informed me that he had, quote, pretty much made up his mind to be annihilated. But still, he does not rest in that anticipation, and I think will never rest until he gets hold of a definite belief. It is strange how he persists, and has persisted ever since I knew him and probably long before, in wandering to and fro over these deserts, as dismal and monotonous as the sand hills in which we were sitting. He can neither believe nor be comfortable in his unbelief, and he is too honest and courageous not to try to do one or the other. If he were a religious man, he would be one of the most truly religious and reverential. He has a very high and noble nature and better worth immortality than the rest of us. But, I mean, that's it's this tension mm. between the attraction of belief and the attraction of sort of a divine plan and just insurmountable skepticism that defines a lot of his views here and this darkness um, that haunts him, that haunts Ahab, that is part of this guy, the Indian hater in this book. Mm. Yeah. Is in some ways the most original character in it about American literature and goes back to that kind of primordial Ahab, you know, revenge. Something wounded me. This is a nest, just explain it, it's a nested story in, in the book where who tells the story? Is it the confidence man? Or, or, oh, yeah. It's like a judge. Yeah. It's one of the things that just comes up, <laughs> but then you're in several pages in this story <laughs> right. of this man, this early American settler whose whole family has been wiped out by Indians and then basically spends the rest of his life killing as many Indians as possible. He's a yeah. colonel. Yeah. But it, I mean, it, but it's really, it, it starts in the... Um, chapter before it and it gets into the whole question of the paramount indian hater and like the yeah. casual indian hater this chapter is called containing the metaphysics of indian hating according to the views of one evidently not so prepossessed as rousseau in favor of savages <laughs> so so you know which is also a theme in moby dick right where he he talks about queequeg the the cannibal harpooner whom he loves as like you know who is what is queequeg but george washington cannibalistically developed i mean he's He's always breaking down these categories and pushing towards the idea that, in fact, we're universal. But this Indian hatred as sort of the fundamental kind of distrust, yeah. race hatred. I, yeah, I was I was thinking about how, like, why is this book so, like, awful to read? Like, why is it? And it like, really was. It's it was just so kind of a hard. horrible Oops. experience. But I, And I think some of it has to do with the fact 
that words are like disconnected from their meanings in a weird way. Like people are just saying all these things that are like irrational and come to nothing and inconsistent, like Philip was pointing out, and they're sort of like floating around. So it kind of makes you seasick almost. But then I also think it's like these stories that have like a moral, but it's like a fake moral, you know, or it's not a real story. It's like nonsense. Or you can't tell what the, or you can't you tell what what the moral is, but there's like men, they, they're sort of structured. So there is going to be a moral. So you're really confused because your mind is like searching for that, like organizing principle or moral or and he's going to refuse it all the time. So that letter you read, the Hawthorne letter kind of explained that a little bit, like the sad desert of the that he's like in this sad desert. And I think that maybe why this book is so hard to read is like the sad desert is too much. Yeah. And detaching words from their meaning to this extent, you know, to sort of have this rhetoric that goes on and on and on. And it's kind of weirdly beautiful, but it like means nothing is um, disturbing on some like really profound level. I think you've I think you've sort of nailed that. I mean, the the sort of the experience of the book is no trust, right? Yeah. Because first of all, it's very hard to get any purchase on it, and then once you get purchase on it, you're usually in one of these side stories. But it's not, and you're and you're then you're sort of engaged in it. But the, you're completely dislocated by the nesting of the moral and whoever is telling the story. And you never – you can't latch on to anything and support it anywhere in the book. Yeah, it, I mean it lacks all the things that sort of ground you in reading a book. It lacks a coherent plot. It lacks development between these stories. I mean there's they, – you sort of get the idea but none of them really leads to the next. Yeah. I mean it, you could read it a little character. bit like a Rolodex, you know, yeah. in a spinning way. You could – or a carousel. You know, you could open it anywhere <laughs> and, and go anywhere. I find that I underline a lot of great one-liners but like can never remember the paragraph much less the chapter they're in when I look back at them. You yeah. know, um, it's like there's no story – uh, there's not he doesn't really have a character because he's no, playing 10 different characters roles. and all of them are fictions so it's it's it is i mean apparently this book in the 60s and 70s was sort of dug up by the early metafictionists who were sort of getting excited about huh. Borges and bart and all these people who are putting things in boxes there's a the last thing i'll read from this andrew del banco biography is this contemporary review that gets at how bad it is to read um, it's from the London Illustrated Times, and it said, We began the book at the beginning, and after reading 10 or 12 chapters, found that we had not yet obtained the slightest clue to the meaning, in case there should happen to be any. <laughs> after reading the work forwards for 12 chapters and backwards for five, we attacked it in the middle, gnawing at it like Rabelais' dog at the bone, in the hope of extracting something from it at last. As a last resource, we read the work from beginning to end, and the result was that we liked it even less than before. <laughs> That's funny. Ouch. But if you, know, if you, if you read this this Mississippi riverboat as a metaphor for the country in that period. And as you said, this kind of frantic, you know, period with all these sort of crazy schemes and crazy characters and people getting rich overnight and terrible injustice and, and you know, a high degree of chaos. Then the sort of Trump idea does kind of fit mm. in because who 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 uh, succeeds and who profits in that environment? The confidence man, this person who you know takes advantage of of this disarray and gets what he wants in the middle of the disorder. Right, sells sells plots in New Jerusalem that yeah. one of one person before he buys isn't this plot on water? Oh no, everything's on solid land. Yeah. You know, I mean. It, <laughs> It is, yeah. It, 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 it's wild. But I also think it kind of captures the disorientation, I think, that we feel like reading the news. 
there was a piece in Slate about like how annoying it is to keep comparing like Trump's old Twitter to like what he says now yeah. because he's of course he's a hypocrite. Of course his words mean nothing. Like of course he's kind of the con man. This like. And I feel like there's a lot of the journalism we read is like people trying to make sense out of this, these proclamations that are never going to make sense. Like there is no logic. And then the kind of acceptance, which you have to do with this book, you read, you first you're like disoriented and then you just have to accept that it's never going to make sense and it's never going to come together. And I think that's kind of um, this idea of like what the truth is and what words mean is a little closer in the confidence man to the way Trump is using words. Then and and that is part of that that queasy feeling is like recognizable to me. There was actually a, a fascinating piece that I read in Slate um, before the election by somebody I'm forgetting his name who had written a book about uh, quacks and snake oil salesmen and sort of the history of various kinds of hucksters and like can't false cancer cures and so forth, often quite elaborate medical schemes and scams. And of yeah. course, those are one of the elements in here. The and the happy doctor. Um, and he was saying how and the basic premise of this piece was most people who support Trump, even if he totally betrays them and fails them, will not blame him because the nature of a quack is different than somebody who makes a very realistic promise in a certain structure. Mm-hmm. And that they're because they've so banked on your own buying in with your belief, you're going to need to protect yourself from the idea that you were a fool huh. mm. and a dupe. Right. And that's part of the confidence man's game. And they're going to seed and sow the thing all along the way with mixture of false science and this, that there are so many things that could have gone wrong and so many others to blame and so many other ways to shift the explanation of this that spares them in order to spare yourself. And it was a really interesting piece that, again, plays off many of these themes and how they apply to in just a kind of broad cosmic way why you would imagine that Philip Roth originally was saying, you know, read yeah. this unreadable book um, because it's really... Uh, Aside from sadism. It's really, yeah. it's, from it's really sadism. more about our times than my incredibly readable book <laughs> yes. about our times. <laughs> Thank you, Philip Roth. We, you gave us one good one and one tough one. I mean, do you think, I mean, just to w- wind up here, this is a, a sort of book like both of you. I didn't much enjoy reading it and it was very difficult to uh, get through, although I'm glad I read it. I it mean, now I'm glad about. to have read it. It's really the ideas here are very interesting and I also feel... You know, if I went back, like if you read it again, once you're kind of, you know, what's not to expect, like a story or characters. You <laughs> Looking know, forward to the, the report on the reread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not going to happen. But, you know, I feel like the, the, the discussion, I'm, I've enjoyed the discussion a lot more than I enjoyed reading the book. Totally. Uh, well, I guess with that, it's time to thank you both. Um, thank you. Philip Gravich of The New Yorker, Katie Royfe from NYU. Um, author most recently of The Violet Hour. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. That's it for our second Trumpcast book club. And we've picked a third book. I think it's going to be easier than the last one. It's Strangers in Their Own Land by Arlie Russell Hochschild. Pick up a copy and read it along with us. And hey, let us know what you think about this book club. It's a bit of an experiment, and we'd love your feedback. You can leave a comment at facebook.com slash realtrumpcast. And we're on Twitter, too, at realtrumpcast. Jason DeLeon produced today's show. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcast. And Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. I'm Jacob Weisberg. We'll be back later this week with more Trumpcast. <laughs>